think it's too soon to write this. I'm still in the grip of the crisis. If this is part of making me righteous, I might just need a little courage to fight this. Honestly, I feel a little bit like Job, though I know he had it worse than me. Facing opposition everywhere I go, like somebody's cursing me. And I'm afraid I lack the faith for the road ahead. I try to follow you, but I don't know where you went. I go to the east, I go to the west, and still I'm not finding you. In the north and in the south, I'm chasing you down like somebody's hiding you. I got a chance and I don't want to waste it Sometimes grace can be a little abrasive But if I embrace it, it'll sharpen up my dull places I'm trying not to focus on how cool the universe can be I'm looking for a reason to believe I'm wrong That somebody's cursing me But I refuse to listen to all the voices in my head But instead I keep praying a word to Joe there you are, and welcome to Redemption's Table. I'm Robert Barge, your host. My favorite season is finally upon us. We're in the final days of September, and we've just been listening to the first half of my friend Ross King's song, Golden, off of his 2021 release entitled Unfinished. It is a tremendous album. Go check it out wherever you stream music. And I'm happy to announce, if you live in the Birmingham, Alabama area, Ross will be joining me on November 12th for a brand new worship venture called Songs and Beatitudes. I'll be sharing more about this in future episodes. Back in the summer, we began airing a six-part table series originally shared during a midweek worship gathering I led back in 2021. This series was called Wrestling with God in the Season of Job. And during those six weeks, participants were encouraged to follow Job's journey throughout the Old Testament book that bears his name, seven chapters at a time. This is the fourth part of that six-part series. It covers Job 22 through 28. Now, thus far, we have already shared at the table, When Your World Comes Apart, that's the first part of the series. When the words of friends are as empty as God is silent, that's part two. When faith soars outlandish, that's part three. And now this week, we share the fourth part, When God Can't Be Found. Thanks for tuning in. Let's jump right in. Well, when we started these eight chapters, seven chapters, excuse me, we were halfway through the story. We're halfway through. We know that. The one living the story, Job, he didn't know that. 
The one living the story never knows that. Because we're in the midst of our stories, midst of our journey. And two weeks ago, we witnessed one of the most incredible faith statements, perhaps in the entire Old Testament. When he made that statement, Job did, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. I know that my Redeemer lives. Scripturally, up till now, there's been no mention of a Redeemer yet. This is hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. This is hundreds of years before Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. This is hundreds of years before he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. And yet Job, in dire straits, from the rock bottom of defeat, says, I know my Redeemer lives. He's there. He is alive. I know this. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement today. That was a powerful thing for Job to say there with his three friends listening on. And, and it just strikes me kind of odd. That statement thus far has been the high water mark in this book. The high water mark between everything Job said, between that conversation between he and his three friends. And you would think that one of them would have at least acknowledged it. You would think one of them would have said, wow. Or maybe one of them would have sent him a text with an emoji, thumbs up, yeah. But last, two weeks ago, we looked at what Zophar had to say about it, or had to say after he made that statement, and there's no emoji. Zophar doesn't even mention it. And if he'd send an emoji, I'm afraid he would send the one that I detest the most. Uh, the one that looks like a Hershey's Kiss, but it's not a Hershey's Kiss. I don't understand that, by the way. Christmas time, walked, you know, walked into Walmart, and there's these stuffed emojis of that, of that of all things. I'm like, when did we become so over-fascinated with that? That's, uh... One of the things Zophar said, he said something along the lines. He said, uh, he said, through his pride, though his pride reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, a proud man, he will perish forever like his own dung. That's what Zophar says. So, Zophar didn't have anything to say about it. Eliphaz, in chapter 22, which we'll look at tonight or glance at, uh, he doesn't say anything about it. As a matter of fact, when he makes his response, he pounds Job with seven rapid-fire questions. First one is, can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous, Job? Little does Eliphaz know, it gives God a lot of pleasure that Job is righteous. Because it was Job's righteousness that God saw when he called attention to Job. When he said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So Eliphaz asked these seven rapid fire questions and then he unleashes a list of imaginary sins, sins of omission, sins of, a com sins of commission. It's ways that the rich often sin against the poor. Eliphaz speaks of these sins in such a way as to insinuate 
that Job has been guilty of every single one of these sins. And in one place, verse 17 of chapter 22, Eliphaz says the same, the same exact thing that Job said the chapter before. The wicked tell God, leave us alone, which tells me that Eliphaz was not listening. None of these guys are listening. They're too busy thinking about what they're going to say next. And then in the last few verses of the chapter, Eliphaz makes this beautiful, well-intended plea, almost like you would find an invitation at the end of a sermon. But he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't know all the facts about Job's situation. For Job was a righteous man. Then in chapter 25, Bildad has his final say. In chapter 25, I don't know if you noticed or not, it is the shortest chapter in the book of Job. Six verses. And he says things like, Bildad says, Dominion and all belong to God. How then can a man be righteous before God? And I think at this point, Bildad's just getting exasperated. He doesn't know what else to say because it doesn't matter what these three guys say. Job has a response, and I think Bildad just sputters out, and I think he just maybe throws up his hands like, oh, and he just shuts up. He's quiet. He's done. And yay, this time around, Zophar doesn't even say a word. Zophar, so done. You know, he's finished. That's it for Job's first three friends. They don't show back up. There was a surprise visitor that shows up next week. Somebody, somebody we didn't really even realize was there. We'll have that to look forward to. But what I was drawn to this week was Job chapter 23. I think there's some nuggets that I found in, in Job chapter 23, and I changed from nuggets, from diamonds to nuggets this week because there's so much talk about gold and silver and that sort of thing. And in verse three of chapter 23, Job says, if only I knew where to find God, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him. If only I knew where to find him. Interesting thing about the word where, it's not found in the Hebrew manuscript. It's not there. So the gist of that is this. Job was saying, oh, that I knew, which I don't, that I would find him. So the problem is not one of place, but it's one of hope that the meeting would occur. And he's not even sure it will. And for just a moment, I want to pause and Talk about the righteousness of Job. Job maintains his innocence, his integrity, his righteousness throughout this entire conversation. And God knows Job's righteousness. The Word of God talks about Job and his righteousness. But I want to make sure we all know Job is righteous. But Job is not perfect. Job is righteous, but Job is not sinless. I think Job's righteousness is, is in how quickly he deals with his sin and seeks the Lord's forgiveness. Go all the way back to chapter 1. It talks about how after Job's children would all gather together at one of those birthday parties. His practice was early in the morning after the birthday party, what would he do? He would offer sacrifices for his children, each one of them. 
in case one of them had cursed God in his heart or said something or committed some sin during one of these parties and he offered a burnt offering for each one of his children. And I think it's safe to say that what Job did for his children, he also did for himself. He kept a very short account of his sin. He didn't let them build up. So Job is like, if I could only find God, we could get this mess all sorted out. Job is not accustomed to being as separated from God as he is right now. There on that ash heap. Job is at a loss. He pulls out his compass. He pulls out his compass. In verse 8, he says this. He says, you know, if I go to the east, God is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work at, in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Can't find him. I've been to the east, the west, the north, the south. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a time like this in your life, or maybe more than one, when it was a very disconcerting time where you were seeking God, and it just seemed like he was nowhere to be found. <laughs> where it seems like, for whatever reason, that is beyond our understanding, God is making us chase him. Almost like God is playing hide-and-go-seek. Tag, you're in. And we can't find him. And this seems to be, what Job says here seems to be the opposite of what David said in Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10. For there David said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? How can I escape you? You're everywhere I go. If I go up to the heavens, you're there, God. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, it doesn't matter where I go, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So I just asked the question, is God always everywhere? Or are there seasons when he is nowhere to be found? I say yes to both, with one exception. Yes, God is always everywhere. And yes, there are seasons when it seems God is nowhere to be found. Back on April 3rd, 2011, I was in my pickup truck traveling from San Antonio, Texas towards San Angelo, Texas. And for 34 days, I had been hard at prayer. I'd been pounding on heaven's door. I'd been praying, asking God to intercede for 34 days. And I was wearing myself out praying. And somewhere on that journey, I just decided to put my headphones on and kick back and not listen, just stop praying, just chill. And I don't know what I was listening to. I probably do. I have a habit on my phone. I'll just hit uh, shuffle. And that's probably what I was listening to. And I may have been listening to John Cougar Mellencamp. I may have been listening to the Doobie Brothers, the Eagles. I don't know. But I was not focused on spiritual things at that moment. I was just trying to get my mind to rest. And all of a sudden... God spoke, and he said, be still and know that I am God. I am getting ready to do something. And I was like, I pulled over the side of the road. It was that overwhelming. And I looked to see what time it was. And I wrote that down, exactly what he just said, and I wrote down the time. 
And I was like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I've been asking you. I'm hoping you're going to answer one of my prayers, which that turned out not to be what he was doing. And still to this day, I'm not totally sure what he was up to. Although I will, will tell you this, on April 9th, six days later, the third largest wildfire in the state of Texas's recorded history entered the town where I lived and came right down the road I lived on and destroyed about eight homes on that road and it didn't destroy our home. And so I was like, is that what you were trying to tell me? I wrote down what God said and then after God said that, it was a long, long time before I heard God speak again, which led me to conclude sometimes God's silences are epic. They have weight. I love Andrew Peterson. I love his music. And he wrote a song called The Silence of God. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod. And the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers. When he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not. When the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to the cross, then what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. And his friends are sleeping and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot. The man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not in the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. Mark Buchanan, in his wonderful book, The Holy Wild, said this. He says, in those moments of our greatest need, our greatest need is simply to see the Lord. I think he's right. Job says, I can't find him. I've searched all directions. And then he goes on to say, but he knows the way that I take. Verse 10, he knows the way that I take. He knows where I am. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. I think that is another colossal statement of faith. In the context of sorrow. He says, my feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. My feet have followed closely. I'm pursuing him. I'm tracking him because I treasure him. I treasure his words more than, more than getting something to eat. In this moment, I think Job surrenders to the sovereignty of God. 
That moment is short-lived. Because when you went over to Job chapter 24, he's back at it again. He says things like, you know, there's so much wrong in this world. There's a sin has a domino effect. Why don't you do something? Where are you? Men seem to prefer darkness rather than light. Job 25, that's when Bildad says his little say. Job 26, Job opens with dripping sarcasm. Kind of funny. He's talking to Bildad, but I think he's talking to all three of them. He says, wow, how you have helped the powerless, Bildad. How you have saved the arm that is feeble. What advice you have offered to one without wisdom. And what great insight you have displayed. Who has helped you utter these words? And whose spirit spoke from your mouth? There's sarcasm in the Bible. He says that very sarcastically, and then he shifts, and he starts talking about nature. And I would not be surprised if maybe some of your nuggets were found in this passage here. Job 27, his weariness breaks through again. He's adamant. He says, enough is enough already. The message paraphrase, verse 2 says, God alive. He's denied me justice. God almighty, he is It's interesting to me, never once in all the speeches of his three friends do they ever address God, do they ever pray to God, and yet Job prays, he speaks, he complains, he fights God. I think Job was a lot like a, a professor once described Jesus, said that Jesus had a stormy prayer life, but a calm public life. I think Job had a stormy prayer life. And I think at this moment he has a stormy public life too. Because <laughs> it just spills over. Sometimes there's so much pressure with it. It just comes gushing out. And that's what's happening here with Job. And then we hit Job 28. And this is where we're going to finish up on the next few minutes. In Job 28, Job goes deep, literally. He, he talks about mining for precious stones, precious metals, precious precious gems. And, and we get a fascinating glimpse at ancient mining practices. It's just like, this is just, just like a song breaks out here. And I'm gonna read this chapter, uh, beginning with verse one of 28. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest depths, blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft in places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men, he dangles and sways. I'd like to picture that miner down in a bucket, but um, he may just be hanging onto a rope or have a rope tied around his waist. And far from men, he dangles and sways down in that black hole. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? 
Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep say, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx of sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. Sometimes you have to live passages to experience them. It's as if you and the story become one. You and scripture become one. For example, I don't know why this happens, but for the last 20 plus years, it seems like I live Holy Week. I don't intend to do that, but somewhere between Palm Sunday and Resurrection morning, I seem to live the heaviness of that week, especially on toward the end, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I start feeling the emotions of that week. And as I was preparing this last week, last Monday, I just learned that my good friend, Doug Johnson, and we've been praying for a miracle for him. I learned that he'd gone home to be with the Lord. Doug is 62 years young. He's one year older than me. And uh, right after church on that Sunday, I went home and I had a heaviness of spirit about me. And I awoke Monday morning, the heaviness was still there. And I just allowed myself to rest because this is a dear, dear friend of mine. The family asked me to go to Texas and preach the memorial service. And I was, I knew I had to finish preparing for last Tuesday night, but I just was heavy. I was overwhelmed. And I knew that I was going to, going to talk about the, where can I find him, east, west, north, south. I knew that was going to come into play, but uh, it was kind of incomplete. And so that Monday afternoon, I just sat in silence. And, and uh, I was there, there at the table. I was pouring over this chapter, chapter 28. And I, I just hung there for a while at the end of my rope, like in a bucket down in the still and darkness of a mine. And I waited. Wasn't sure what might come out. And then this came. Now, I noticed there had been a lot of silver and gold in this passage, a lot, of, a lot of mention of that and these last seven chapters. And if you place Job 28 beside Job 23, Job 23, he says, I know, the, or God knows rather, the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And then in Job 28, Job goes off spelunking down into this mine. And so I went off with him. 
And pretty soon the ore bucket began to fill up. He's not looking for fool's gold. He's not looking for man's gold. He's looking for God's gold. He's looking for wisdom. And these things came to the surface. First, number one, what man so desperately searches for? Gold, silver, sapphires, sapphires, rubies. What man so desperately searches for? God is making us through this suffering. What Job says back in chapter 23, I'm going to come out gold. After this, I'm going to come out gold. Second thing, just as with real gold, it is buried for now in our pain and our brokenness. But it is there. And it will be revealed. If and when God chooses to mine it and bring it to the surface. Number three, but buried deep within us, it is already changing and enriching us. Even though it's not seen the light of day and made it to the surface. It says God understands the way to wisdom and he alone knows where it dwells. Verse 24, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heaven, heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. And those verses there led me to number four. When you can't find God, God is right there working in the mind of your darkness. You just need to be still and know it is so. What God thinks, or excuse me, what Job thinks is lost, God's presence, God's wisdom, is being forged from within. You have to descend to meet God, to dangle and sweat. What you can't see, let your other senses take over and reveal to you by listening to God's voice, hearing what God says. Number five, there is no wisdom mind out there. So what Job's talking about here, looking for wisdom, there's no wisdom mind out there, but there is one in here. It's kind of funny. One day the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, hey, hey, uh, when the kingdom of God comes, they asked him when the kingdom would come. And, and Jesus said these words. He says, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom's right under your nose, guys. <laughs> you know, for years I have been praying James 1, 5. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and God will give it in abundance, liberally. And I, I, I read that verse and go, I lack wisdom. I lack so much wisdom. And so I daily ask God for wisdom. There are nuggets and diamonds being fashioned within you that can only be created under pressure. 
You have to trust God is doing this. Even when you don't see him, he's working. Even when you don't feel him, he's working. You have to trust God is, is doing this, that it is there, but you can't go tearing into yourself to draw it to the surface. You have to sit in God's stillness, which can seem like an eternity of darkness at times, to allow God to reveal it. Job concludes chapter 28. He says, God said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Fear of the Lord. Not talking about paralyzing fear. Talking about energizing fear. The fear of the Lord. Oh, it, it, that's wisdom. That's where it begins. And to shun evil is understanding. <laughs> I read that verse and I think back again to my prayer in James 1.5. I realize I could have even more wisdom than God in his grace has already allowed me to have if I always had the fear of the Lord and if I always shunned evil Start from scratch, see what we can live without. In the end, I know it'll all be gold. While I wait for that, I don't look back. Me go.